from France, number 14, Michelle Patini. Number 15, from Italy, Seats still available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody, how's it going? My name is indeed Tim Hanlon, and you have stumbled across yet again, uh, well, maybe perhaps for the first time, uh, our little curious podcast journey. We call it Good Seats Still Available, and uh, it is our exploration into what used to be in professional sports. I uh, welcome you to uh, the shenanigans. And this week we are uh, stumbling back into soccer uh, professionally, of course, and I think a very uh, uh, fun uh, conversation. And especially for folks uh, of a certain age, uh, like myself, uh, perhaps who uh, grew up in the northern New Jersey, uh, New York City metropolitan area during the uh, 70s and early 80s, uh, and uh, fancy themselves as uh, Cosmos soccer fans, uh, NASL pro soccer fans, Certainly uh, benefited from a lot of the international soccer uh, experiences that came through Giant Stadium during that time. Uh, and interestingly, uh, what transpired in the years afterwards and the various uh, journeys and uh, pivots and divots uh, that the sport of uh, big time professional soccer took once the NASL collapsed, once the Cosmos went away. Uh, the uh, basically uh, folks who had grown up. Uh, watching and, and adopting and, and becoming interested in this sport uh, suddenly found themselves with uh, without mooring, shall we say, uh, even on the world stage, right, with uh, a team that wasn't even qualifying for the World Cup. Uh, all of that and more, sort of a, a tableau, I guess, of an American soccer fan's journey uh, in the uh, in the in the embodiment of a person and a book. His name is Michael Agovino, and his book is called The Soccer Diaries: An American's Thirty Year Pursuit of the international game. It has uh, just been re-released uh, in paperback version from our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. It originally came out in, what was it, 2014? Yep, I think it was. And I have uh, the uh, hard copy uh, in my hot little hands here. 
Um, and I, I, if you are a, uh, a current fan of Major League Soccer uh, or maybe a fan of uh, today's uh, game in some way, shape or form, whether it be MLS or otherwise, uh, and or remember or were part of uh, the old North American Soccer League, especially the years when it was in, uh, I guess, uh, its decline, sort of the, the early 1980s after sort of the heyday and the perhaps overexpansion. We've explored that in other episodes. I think you're going to enjoy this uh, this conversation, and I know you will enjoy this book, The Soccer Diaries, because uh, this is a real uh, uh, you know personal journey uh, of of Michael Agavino's to uh, understand what the hell this sport is and was right in the United States. Right, I don't think is uh, a, a, a too foreign an experience, a, a word that uh, I'm pivoting on, but. Uh, it was and is a foreign sport for many Americans, or certainly was even more so in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I think I think it's lost on on uh, today's generation of soccer fans in this in this country about just how difficult it was actually to follow this sport once you got hooked. Right. For me, the the drug was uh, the cosmos, right, and going to the games. But you know, once those games are over, you know, how else did you sort of follow the sport? I mean, we talk about things like. Uh, you know, the limited availabilities uh, of soccer on television. Uh, and by the way, not always in English. Uh, the uh, uh, the sort of, I guess, almost uh, opaque understanding of, of the world game in a pre-internet and pre-cable uh, era, right? When information and uh, access to games was uh, few and far between and uh, and not even necessarily live or fully presented. Um, you know, there were little pockets of things that you could get, whether it be soccer made in Germany with Toby Charles or watching Tony Torado on the S-A-E-N-A television network, uh, you know, a Spanish network that, you know, uh, every hour or so uh, during a game, Tony Torado would uh, uh, would sneak in a little English, uh, broken English at that. Uh, hello to the uh, handful of American, uh, sorry, not American, but uh, English speaking fans. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, quickly go back to. Uh, his rapid Spanish style, right? But at least it was a wink and a nod uh, to this uh, small but hearty uh, group of fans, wherever they might be, uh, who were hooked on this game. And uh, the stories, the travails, uh, the uh, the twists and turns, uh, it's very personal story. Uh, and I think it's very emblematic of, of any soccer fan over the last uh, 20, 30 years who has sort of gone through the the ups and downs of of being a fan of the sport. And look, we still have some downs and ups uh, still to come. And uh, I think it's all a tremendous uh, backstory for uh, where we go with the sport in uh, in the future. Michael Agavino, our guest coming up in uh, just a couple of seconds. So please, of course, stay tuned and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Uh, a couple of quick promo items before we get uh, to that chat. Uh, we want to remind you that uh, our friends at Audible uh, offer you a free one month subscription to the audio book service that is Audible, the best of breed, shall we say, in things audiobooks, uh, as well as a free audiobook download uh, for you to uh, sample the excitement that is audiobooks across a wide array of 180,000 plus titles uh, to choose from in just about every genre you can imagine. The best place, of course, to give that trial uh, a sampling, shall we say, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that is your opportunity to get a free audiobook download and a free one-month uh, subscription to the service. Enjoy it. You can cancel it any time, and uh, we love audiobooks, as you know, and it's an awesome way 
uh, to support the show. So please do so. AudibleTrial.com slash good seats. And uh, we thank you for uh, giving them a try. We also thank you for giving our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com a try. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is a uh, an amazing uh, place and a site. And I, I urge you to bookmark it, go there regularly and see what proprietor Dean Mitchell has for you to choose from, updated on a regular basis from the world of forgotten teams and leagues and sports. Uh, and there's an amazing array of stuff, whether it be from buttons or pennants or programs or you name it, all kinds of, of uh, memorabilia from sports and teams and leagues that uh, that uh, will uh, tickle the fancy. And hopefully when you find something that you got to have or perhaps your friend or your loved one has to have, make sure that you use the promo code that gives us some love in the process. And that promo code is good seats. Yes, the promo code good seats at sportshistorycollectibles.com. You will get 15% off your purchases and uh, you'll be glad you did, as they say. Again, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use that promo code good seats and enjoy your free or free, your 15% discount. It's not free. That would be something. That would be one hell of a promotion. Don't you think, Dean? 15% off your purchases, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Thank you, Dean, and thank you to them as well for their sponsorship of our show. All right. So let us uh, segue into our fun conversation. Here's my chat with the author of The Soccer Diaries, Michael Agavino. This is a, a conversation I've been looking forward to for, for a long time because uh, this is a book uh, that you wrote originally back in what year did, did this come out originally in, in uh, hardcover? This came out, Tim, in uh, 2014. Okay, so the right before the last World Cup. Right. So the the book we're called it's called the Soccer Diaries: An American's Thirty Year Pursuit of the International Game, and uh, it was um, I don't know how I discovered it. It was obviously in a bookstore somewhere, and I saw on the uh, the book jacket right a uh, sort of a uh, gray slash greenish version of what looked like a very full giant stadium. And having mm-hmm. grown up myself in the northern New Jersey area, and having been a Cosmos soccer season ticket holder for quite some time. Uh, it was this book uh, spoke to me uh, because it almost replicates uh, what sort of my uh, experiences were uh, through sort of the journey of what this thing called soccer is and was. Um, mm-hmm. uh, before we sort of get into your journey, your story, and all that kind of stuff, because it's it's a it's a it's it. I think it will resonate with a lot of people for those who who may not have uh, grown up in the New York area like we did. Uh, I'm curious mm-hmm. as to what um, what is the event that is uh, uh, enabling the reissue in paperback version? Uh, have people suddenly discovered it uh, uh, a couple of years later, and 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 uh, the demand grown for it? Uh, what do you attest? Uh, what do you attribute that to? I hope it does, Tim. But um, but no, I mean often uh, in, in book publishing, you know, the paperback will come out one year um, after the uh, it, it's published in paper in uh, hardback. But uh, because it's um, soccer, which I think is, you know, um, has arrived, it's, it's, it arrived a while ago, frankly, but, um, a lot, you know, it's still not perceived as, as, you know, as big a sport as, you know, baseball, football, basketball. So the publisher wanted to wait to, uh, to put out the paperback and, and, and wanted to sort of, uh, attach it to the world cup. So they, they, they wanted it to come out this spring in, uh, in, in 18. So, so that's why it's, it's, uh, it's been, uh, reissued now. Well, I guess that makes sense, right? Obviously the world cup and, and we'll get into sort of 
the United States' absence in this upcoming version. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because your book uh, in the prologue basically starts with an international soccer event. That's really kind of your almost your uh, your baptism by fire, I guess, uh, in in a personal mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, live way. Um, maybe you can kind of scene set a little bit as to um, you know let's maybe we should start with this. Let's start with sort of your your background in your childhood and what you do as a career now, and then maybe mm-hmm. we can sort of delve into. Um, the beginnings of that uh, circa early 19, I guess, 82 or so, when we uh, begin the story uh, at a, a, a jam-packed giant stadium. That's right. And I want to find out if you were there, because a lot of people have come to me since then and said, yeah, I was at that game. Um, um, and that was August of, of 82. And basically, I'm from New York, a real New York City kid, um, grew up in the Bronx, um, I lived there the, actually the first 25 years of my life and was a big, you know, just huge sports fan growing up. And my father was from, from East Harlem and he grew up loving the New York Yankees and, and basketball and football, boxing, um, and, but not soccer. Uh, even though he was the child of immigrants, he was not a soccer fan. He wasn't a soccer hater at all. And as you know, there were a lot of really, um, a lot of soccer haters back then, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but he wasn't a soccer hater. He just, you know, loved the American sports. It's kind of how he assimilated. One of the ways he assimilated here in the U.S. was through sports. And um, the Cosmos existed, and you probably came to the Cosmos before I did, and I, I was aware of the Cosmos from the, the sort of nightly uh, highlights on the nightly news, on the 11 o'clock news. I'd see the goals and I knew of Pelé and, and Beckenbauer, but I never went to a game. It was far away. My father didn't drive. So, you know, just giant stadium was, was really far uh, if, if you had to go by public transportation. And um, then the 82 World Cup came on and I didn't even know it was it was it was um, approaching. It was it was the summer. I was too young to have a summer job. I was out of school, so I had the summer free. And the games were on live on the, what was called then the Spanish International Network, S-I-N, seen in Spanish. And oh, no, um, Sorry, actually, S-E-N-A. This, uh, the, right, so, right, right, and, and, and it's <laughs> interesting you mentioned that because like, I, I vividly remember uh, uh, a young and youthful and enthusiastic Tony Torado uh, who would That's call right. those games, right? And he would... He would not. Uh, he would tip his cap, if you will, to uh, the uh, uh, Anglo listening audience about once an hour with a very broken English uh, salute, I guess, to the English uh, speaking fans, and then it would just go right back to the uh, ratatat of uh, of Spanish. Exactly, and it was my first. I learned. I started learning Spanish through Tony Tirado, actually, and my mother loved it because she. She thought even back then, you know, Spanish is an, it's an important language. A lot of people speak it. And so she was happy that, you know, I was watching these games in Spanish and that it would hopefully, you know, I would learn Spanish and it would rub off on me. And and also they had the games on the Soccer Made in Germany broadcast, which you, of course, remember on PBS. They had these truncated 90-minute uh, games. They truncated them to an 60 minutes from the Bundesliga with a uh, a British announcer, a Welsh announcer, actually, Toby Charles, who's kind of a legend to some of us, uh, 
But then when the World Cup started, they had World Cup games that Toby Charles would, would announce, also uh, kind of condensed into an hour. So I, I see these games like twice. I saw them twice a day, basically, and I was just hooked, absolutely hooked. Uh, just a game changer, that, that World Cup, for me anyway. And then I got into the Cosmos. So I got into the Cosmos late. Um, during that World Cup, actually, and after the World Cup. And then I see a, um, an ad in the paper that, you know, the, the UNICEF is sponsoring, UNICEF and FIFA was sponsoring this, what they call the World All-Star Game. And they, they build it as Europe versus the rest of the world. And they really brought the best players over from the World Cup. And not everyone was from the World Cup. Even they, they was, everyone was really kind of a well-balanced roster on, on, on each side. Um, but the stars of the 82 World Cup were there, except Maradona. But Zico was there, Falcao, Rossi, Zoff, um, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, um, yeah, Daniel Passarella of Argentina, so many. Um, and I bugged my father, and tickets were $12, I think, for Upper Deck. And he was like, all right, it's really hard to get there, but I've, I've been told there's bu- you know, buses from the Port Authority, and that's where the book begins, this kind of prologue, this journey from the Northeast Bronx uh, to Giant Stadium to my first you know, live soccer game. And, um, and it kind of takes off from there. Then I go back in time a little, you know, and I describe how we played soccer in public school in the Bronx, which, you know, it was a well-meaning gym teacher, but it was this weird, bizarre uh they called it line soccer where you had like 11 or 15 kids on a, like a volleyball court. And there were maybe six kids strung across the baseline of the volleyball court. And if you got it through them, that was a goal. So there were like six goalkeepers and then maybe 10 field players. It was this insane. Um, I, he might admit, he may have made it up the gym teacher, but that's what we knew of soccer. There were no club teams. There were no, other teams to join in the area. And, um, and then I learned what real soccer was all about through that world cup. And then Cosmos games on WOR, as you probably remember, since you're from the, from North Jersey and, uh, Seamus Mallon and Jim Carvelis, and then continuing with the games on the Spanish channel, discovering the Italian games on Sunday, early Sunday morning, and, uh, and, you know, it became a kind of an addiction from there. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second. So let's, let's, let's talk about sort of maybe scene setting a little bit about the sort of early 1980s, uh, both in the sort of New York metropolitan area, sort of life uh, in the city and, and the environs, right? Because uh, New York City mm-hmm. was not necessarily um, uh, the most robust and booming place, right? There was also the, uh, the macroeconomic uh, inflation and, and all kinds of interesting economic issues going on at the time. And, and also, too, just the, the, the um, I guess, the geography, right? Because, I, I, you know, you, you say you came to the Cosmos late and your, your first taste of an actual professional game was at Giant Stadium where they had played for a bunch of years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think it's, uh, it's lost on people outside the New York metro area just how – um, you know, expansive, obviously, the geography of the New York metro uh, uh, environment is. And then the role mm-hmm. of a giant stadium, right, which is this in 1977, 78 was essentially this brand new state of the art, sparkling 70, almost 77,000 seat stadium in the New right. Jersey Meadowlands, which, yeah, it's it, on the map. It's in the metro area. But, 
you know, if you live and grow up in the in New York City area, right, public transportation effectively meant a car, right, which is yeah. not public transportation for a whole lot of people in the New York metro area. So maybe a little background into sort of uh, the New York City experience and and I guess the, the the little dribbles of understanding of what this soccer thing was all about that even led you to, you know, make that big journey, if you will, to get to Giant Stadium for the first time. Yeah, well, transportation was a big thing. I mean, and with my family, my mother had a car for, you know, through the from the early 70s, maybe to the early 80s. But she really never used she it was a used car it was an ugliest car in our neighborhood, a big Buick LeSabre. And she learned to drive late and she was kind of afraid to drive. So we didn't go very many places in that car. And she certainly wasn't going to go to New Jersey to drive me to a soccer game. My dad couldn't drive at all. He was from Manhattan. And, um, and, um, so yeah, you had to go by public transportation. And it was one thing to go to Shea Stadium, which was fairly close. Uh, and, and easy to get to by public transportation. Even though I was from the Bronx, there was a, actually a bus right outside my door that went to Main Street Flushing for Met games. Um, Yankee Stadium was easy enough to get to. Um, Madison Square Garden was very easy to get to. And I grew up loving all of those sports. I mean, I was just a, a sports junkie as a little kid, um, collecting baseball cards, going to Met games. Um, actually, I grew up a Mets fan, I have to confess. Um, so it was usually Shea Stadium. Yeah. Um, and it was usually Shea Stadium, some Yankee games, a lot of Nick games. Um, I don't follow hockey anymore, but I was a huge Rangers fan, um, back then. So boxing too was on TV all the time, like great fights on channel on ABC, NBC, CBS. Um, so I was a huge boxing fan too. Um, and then the soccer thing came along and there was, it took me by surprise. I just fell in love with it. Um, then I realized Cosmos games were on WOR, the away games. Um, it was always away games like the Nixon Rangers. They always showed only away games and the Cosmos it was the same thing. And there was no one to play with. There was one kid in my building and I mentioned him in the book and we're still in touch. He was Jamaican and he was like a, an older brother to me. I really looked up to him. Because back then, New York was, you know, kind of a dangerous place. And he was he was a, from a really solid family. And but he was also, you know, like he was a really good athlete. He was kind of a cool guy. And um, and he played soccer and he taught me the basics. And I mentioned this in the early chapters. Um, he was two years older than me and um, he would play alone. He would practice alone in this big high school um, football and baseball field and track. And um, he taught me the basics. Um, his uncles came once or twice from Jamaica and they kind of invited me to train, you know, to practice with them. And that left an a good impression on me. And um, but that was that was kind of it. You know, it was it was sort of um, even though, as you know, there were pockets in the tri-state area of 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 soccer lovers, you know, your Northern Jersey, um, you know, later on when I worked at Esquire magazine, I, I worked with a guy from, uh, Kearney, New Jersey. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize that that was such a hotbed, you know, and that, uh, Tab Ramos was from there and, and John Hartz and Tony Miola. And they had this club team that I learned about even in the eighties, I had heard about it called Thistle FC, 
which was started by uh, Scottish immigrants. Um, so there were these hotbeds um, in Connecticut. I'd heard about it, that there was, you know, um, you know, good high school programs. Actually, the, um, the J- Jamaican friend of mine, Amani, he went to a, a, a really good private uh, high school in Connecticut. Um, so even in those years, we would play together and practice. And then by early August, he was off to the to his private school. And then I was left alone and I would just kind of do what, you know, Amani taught me <laughs> how to practice and juggle with the ball and, and, and work on my stamina and, and, and what have you. And, um, again, without a car, you were kind of, um, yeah, just, there wasn't much locally. Um, so was watching a lot of it on, on, on TV. And then in a few years trying to find magazines, uh, from, from England and uh, but it also it was it, it made it fun. It was it was kind of it was like this kind of secret secret society in a way. Um, and if you found someone, uh, it would kind of who was a soccer fan. Sometimes a workman would come by and see me playing in this vast empty field, and he'd kick the ball with me. You know, he might be from the Caribbean or from Latin America or Europe. And he might kick the ball with me for, you know, 15 minutes. And that made my day or made my week. You know, um, there was an Armenian Armenian brothers across the this. It was a huge housing complex I was from. And I would see them kicking a ball from my terrace. And like they'd be a half mile away, but I could see them kicking the ball. And I would sort of run down and, and play with them for an hour. And that would just kind of make your make your day, you know, and um so, yeah, it was completely different back then uh, to what it is now. But yet it was it was it, it was kind of magical, too. I, I think that's a, that's a really great way of putting it, sort of that secret society kind of idea. Right. Because um, and agreed, I, you know, I having grown up in northern Jersey, I did, did have a bit more of sort of the uh, we, we had uh, some some soccer leagues uh, for kids uh, way, you know, in the mid 70s, actually. Um, but that was a rarity, right? And obviously, you know, mm-hmm. juxtaposed against what what exists today, which is you know a, a bountiful uh, array of choices for for kids to play. Um, but I think it's just interesting and ironic, almost, in that you know here we are, two kids of sort of the the metropolitan New York City area with sort of different experiences, mm-hmm. yet discovering sort of this game, uh, and somehow furtively uh, discovering uh, all the various elements of it and and how big this thing is. You know, in mm-hmm. a in a, uh, in a in an area, and frankly, in a country uh, that um, uh, you know f- had some soccer history, but certainly not to the level of uh, of the major sports that uh, that have become quintessentially uh, American. I that I think mm-hmm. that's the part of this story that sort of resonates most um, most deeply with me, and I think with our audience too. Those who uh, fancy themselves as American soccer fans, either this generation or maybe a generation before, um, mm-hmm. I, I, the the process of discovery and then recognizing or finding others that have somehow on their own went, uh, gone through their, that similar journey, right? The discovery of a world soccer magazine or seeing mm-hmm. somebody who went to a Cosmos game or, you know, uh, it's almost like a, a brotherhood, so to speak. Uh, once you recognize that somebody else has sort of gone through the same sort of laborious process of getting up early to watch, you know, a tape delay. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. Although the Italian games were, were they tape delayed? I think they were live. Actually. Maybe. Yeah. 
But um, but I know what you mean. Often I put on the, the Spanish International Network and you were never sure. Well, they would say Vivo and Directo, but sometimes you didn't know if it wasn't Vivo and Directo. Was it same day coverage? Was it from the week before? It was, you know, I the Bundesliga game, the soccer made in Germany were those from those that Saturday or the previous Saturday. Um, I didn't at the beginning. I didn't know. I was just kind of watching whatever I could. And, and, and let me just backtrack. When I say secret society, I'm, I, I should say a secret society, but an open society, too, because in those in those years, anyone who was a soccer fan, I found them to be so kind of open minded and welcoming. And so uh, secret society, maybe, maybe I put it the wrong way. It, it was just very. Um, yeah, just very open and welcoming. Um but yeah, just just it was just a very niche interest, I guess. Um, but but really great people. Any soccer fan I met back then was just you know I just kind of immediately um, got along with them for whatever reason. And these these were the days before you could exchange you know Twitter handles and stay in touch, you know. And then you might never see them again. But um, yeah, it was it was something it was something special then in a way, even though it was such it was it was it was rare. But it was um, it was special, like you like you said. Well, we're also look. We're also talking about a, uh, a, a an American media environment, right, which was uh, just starting to kind of um, uh, break open, right, beyond sort of the the classic, you know, three or four uh, broadcast networks and the handful of TV stations. Obviously, a a New York metropolitan area or Los Angeles, et cetera, you know, has you know a larger amount of of TV stations. But but that was still a rel- mm-hmm. relatively limited thing. Cable, right, television, mm-hmm. which was you know, not quite in its infancy, but certainly in its uh, maybe beginning adolescent stages, right? So things like the USA Network and and this fledgling ESPN thing, right? So that sports had mm-hmm. a few more outlets than, uh, shall we say, some uh, uh, not easily found uh, time slots on uh, public television. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that sort of uh, aided and abetted sort of the more uh, connective tissue, I guess, of, of, of soccer fans. But, you know, your, your first major chapter in this book is, is I think aptly titled uh, the dark ages, right? So re- <laughs> 82 from your sort of first, uh, uh, direct experience with a professional soccer match to, to the early part of the 1990s. Um, do you kind of want to maybe get a little, uh, granular or some of the anecdotes that you sort of talk about? Why do you call it the dark ages? Um, and, and maybe some of the examples that, uh, for, especially for listeners of ours who are of a, of a certain age, uh, who maybe not, weren't around at that time, and maybe you know they understand Major League Soccer and and the European Cup and all these kinds of things, but they don't sort of understand how, shall we say, uh, tenuous and or dark the times were for being a a fan of soccer, either the American version or the world version, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this country when it wasn't necessarily. Uh, a mainstream kind of activity. And not only was it mainstream, of course, you could also say, well, it was my enlightenment, my own personal enlightenment were those dark years, actually, because um, that's when I when just became addicted to it. Um, but the dark ages, I, I should say, I, I don't think I invented that term. And I don't know where I've, I've heard it bandied about um, now and again. But But just like you say, there was not much of it and I don't know how you feel about this, Tim. It, there was a hostility towards soccer um, among media people, too. I mean, among people, a lot of people who loved American sports, 
And I love those sports too, but there was a lot of hostility towards it, constant jokes about it. And some of them, some of them were just jokes, but some of them veered off into kind of nasty territory about it being foreign, it being kind of not masculine, you know, which I talk about in the book, it being somehow other. And I never understood that to me. I was a small kid always. And, um, I thought, well, this is something I could get good at. I don't have to be six foot two. And I love playing basketball. And I was a pretty good basketball player for a short kid because um, I played with good players. Um, and they invited me in and let me play with them. And that's how I got better at basketball. But still, to get really good at basketball, you, you know, you're not going to be – it's not the short kid who's going to really excel unless you're Spud Webb or someone. But um, – you know, I found it to be an, an inviting sport, you know, and, and others somehow, and even till this day, you still kind of hear these things. They, they find it threatening. And I don't know why. I think it's a great game that, you know, anyone could play at any level. And, um, but back then, yes, there were pockets. I'm not from California, but I spoke to some, I did a radio program the other day, a show called Sports Byline. And the host was probably around my age and was from the Bay Area. And he had very similar experiences. It, it, the book kind of spoke to him, and, and he had similar experiences. Um, in fact, in, in one of the chapters in the book, there's a, I, I talk about ordering books like The Soccer Tribe, which is a famous, famous British book from the 1970s. And uh, The Football Grounds of Europe was another book I ordered. And it was from a place called Soccer Learning System in Pleasanton, California, which is Northern California. Um, there was, I ordered videos, soccer videos from um, a, a place in Natchez, Mississippi. You know, I'm sure Southern California always was, was, was um, a, a soccer hotbed. St. Louis, I've always read, you know, we talked about New Jersey. So it was around, but it, it was, it, not only was it not mainstream, I found it was, it was made fun of and, and, I took all kinds of crap uh, <laughs> for being a soccer fan. And um, even to the point, sometimes you had to worry about your physical safety sometimes. But um, but yet there were the Cosmos. I, I fell in love with the North American Soccer League. Um, and it had only been in existence at that time for 12 years. It felt to me like it had always been there, but it, it hadn't been. It was fairly new league um, when you think about it. When you think of MLS now, 12 years ago, I mean, MLS has been around since 1996. So 12 years ago, I mean, it doesn't seem like a long time ago. Um, so anyway, yeah. And then, and then, you know, I covered my college team. I never became a good player because I started late. I started um, – way late in my teenage years playing. Um, I loved playing, but I knew I wasn't going to be on a you know, college level. So I covered my, my, my team kind of in this very geeky way at uh, New York university. And, um, and then, you know, again, watching the games on the Spanish, by then it was S, uh, Spanish international network was gone. It was called Univision, which we all know now. And Telemundo, and again, always those Italian games, Sunday morning, and the highlights show. And they showed, you know, the Italian, the um, it was the Rye feed, and they showed the, the the Wednesday games, which if there was an Italian team in the three big tournaments, which is the European Cup, now known as Champions League, the 
UEFA Cup and the uh, Forgotten Cup Winners Cup, which took me a few years to figure out sure. what that was in the eighties. You know, um, and they if an Italian team was in one of those tournaments, you'd get a game on at, on Wednesday afternoon our time. You know, live from Europe, um, and you were seeing great players. You know, Maradona and 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 the great Milan teams as they were uh, as they were rising under uh, Saki. And, uh, and Juventus and, and then the teams they played, you know, the Anderlechts and the, um, the Real Madrid's and et cetera, uh, Monaco and Marseille and, and uh, Bayern Munich and, and um, Hamburg. And then these teams, as you know, being from New Jersey, they would come to Giant Stadium for these friendlies also, um, like the Transatlantic Challenge Cup. You'd get double headers of an NASL uh, game, Cosmos versus whoever, Vancouver Whitecaps or Seattle Sounders. And then you'd have an internet, two international teams. Um, and I'm sure you went to a lot of those and those were, those were great. And, you know, now there's, there's too many of these, uh, summer friendlies, I think, and they feel like money grabs, but back then it was like, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing ever. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, world team tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the L.A. Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try. Perhaps one of those two or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening. And. Back to our conversation. 
you're mentioning the NASL, right? And obviously, you you were jump started, I guess, in the professional game. You know, listening to some games, watching some games on TV, and and actually making that trek uh, to some mm-hmm. of those games. But you know, as our as our listeners know, and and folks of the old NASL, you know, would sort of uh, put this in the framework. You became a fan or aware of and more actively engaged with the Cosmos and the NASL just at the very moment, those last uh, three mm-hmm. years or two years of its existence, right? So y- you almost latched on during its, shall we say, downfall. And maybe you mm-hmm. want to sort of uh, give us some experiences of those of those games and what you sort of felt and, and, and what ultimately happened circa 85, right? Which is almost a, if you will, not only for the league, but almost a collapse, right, of this faith that you've sort of built up of this this sport that you found so intriguing that enough to furtively find all these uh, ways to keep in touch with it. Um, yeah. It kind of just yeah. seemed like it was abandoning you by the middle of the decade, and not just you, of course. Yeah, and I said that. I, I think in that I did a chapter on 1985, and and, um, and they announced the league was folding, that there wasn't going to be a season, and it's like, oh, my God. Like, I had, I didn't see it coming. I mean, there wasn't the coverage of soccer. Not, I mean, there wasn't – and there was only the tiniest percentage of the coverage of soccer that there is now. So I, you know, this wasn't talked about. I don't remember them saying the league was in trouble. Maybe in 84, there was some wind of it. Probably. Yeah, there probably was by the fall of 84. Um, but I think, you know, then that horrible Heisel stadium incident that during the European cup, then the U S lost out, um, in the qualifying to the 86 world cup, like they, they lost to well, who was it now? Costa Rica in California. There were only 10,000 people there, most rooting for Costa Rica. And, um, and the U S was eliminated from the 86 world cup. And I, I think I phrased it like I lost my best friend, like soccer felt like it was, it was dead. And um, yeah, that was a depressing time because I was just, you know, getting into it and just loving the cosmos and going to games regularly by then, not well as regularly as I could. And my father could, um, you know, get away, but, um, yeah, that was a sad, sad, sad thing. Um, well, we you know, know, I had already seen, go ahead. Tim, yeah, go I was gonna say, we also know though, too, in retrospect, right. So, and unbeknownst to you and frankly to me at, during that time, right, there was, uh, a real effort to uh, try to get – well, I, I think there was an awareness certainly in, in the professional league uh, circles that uh, that things were foundering. And, and some of that was macroeconomic. Some of it was, you know, overexpansion and, and specific to the league itself and, and obviously other things sort of just, you know, conspiring, I think, at the end of the day. The USFL becoming a successful spring football league, et cetera. Um, we can get into that, and we have in some other, some other podcasts. But there was – uh, a real concerted effort to uh, get the World Cup uh, in 1986 uh, mm-hmm. as Colombia, which was the original um, designee for that tournament. Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe people like Henry Kissinger and others in sort of the senior soccer circles uh, made a, uh, a very significant effort uh, to kind of uh, make the United States sort of the backup plan uh, should Colombia, mm-hmm. which obviously didn't uh, happen, um, be able to sort of follow through. And yeah. you, know, you, you wonder, I mean, clearly, so I guess my point is that there there are people, you know, who are recognizing that there was some some foundering and that perhaps something like a World Cup could be a catalyst to 
take what began, I guess, in the United States with the NASL to a more sustained level going forward and, and sort of re-inject, I guess, some of that initial enthusiasm, albeit uh, in pockets, to maybe take the sport to the next level. But sadly, it didn't happen, and, and arguably it collapsed <clears throat> altogether from these events that you're uh, you're talking about, circa 85 or so. Right, and, and um, I remember that, you know, one of the pictorial World Cup books I have from 82, the last page is someone has like a Colombian flag and they're saying, you know, basically see you in four years in Colombia. And I, I always thought Colombia, wish Colombia, I hope they do get to host that, that, that World Cup they were supposed to in 86. But of course, sadly, they had to withdraw. Um, we were, yeah, we were talked about at the time. Mexico put on another beautiful World Cup. Um, like the 1970, maybe not as good as the 1970, which was, you know, still maybe to this day the the, the greatest World Cup ever. But yeah, that would that would have that, that's interesting. I mean, how, what what would that have changed? You know, in in um, in American soccer, you know, trajectory and the interest. Who knows? Um, but it didn't happen. And um, but then by 1988. I think 4th of July, 88, I have in the book, they announced, you know, the U.S. was awarded the 94 World Cup. So that that, too, was like and I still couldn't believe it. And I write about this even as we, you know, in 92, 93, people would as I met more soccer fans, like, oh, are you getting ready for the World Cup? And I, I would tell people, I said, you know what? I'll see it when it actually I'll believe it when it actually gets here. I'll see it when I I'll believe it when I see it. When it, when it arrives here, because I did remember Colombia, you know, was awarded the World Cup and it was it was not taken from them. They, they withdrew. But I thought something could go wrong with the U.S. There was there was no professional league still. I was surprised that the U.S. got it. There were, you remember there were problems. Giant Stadium wasn't even a finalist or one of the proposed um, uh final 12 um, grounds because it was too narrow um, under FIFA rules. And actually FIFA made an exception for that. Um, There was wild talk of them building a field above the first three rows of Giant Stadium, like a platform, so they could make the field wide enough. But I guess that was too expensive. So they kept the, the, uh, you know, the field as it was, and they made an exception. So I, I thought, you know, there was the artificial turf, you know, were they really going to convert all these artificial turf fields into like Giant Stadium and others? Were they really going to make them natural grass? Like, so I was like, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, and but, you know, luckily it, 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 it went it went off and, 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 and was an excellent World Cup in 94 tournament. So, so let, let, before we get to the 94 World Cup and sort of the, the next sort of chapter of the book, because it's a, it's it's very uh, emblematic, um, mm-hmm. answer me sort of these twin questions, right? So sure. how did you subsist, so to speak, as a soccer fan, given that collapse, shall we say, 85-ish, mid-80s, right? I mean, disillusionment, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and I guess maybe similarly and maybe more importantly, why? Right. What what's driving what has been what was driving the passion uh, or the interest to, to to keep finding out and, and sticking with it, so to speak, despite maybe a sense of abandonment? Mm-hmm. No, that's a good question. I guess by then, by 85, it's been three years 
So I think I was really hooked by then. And there, again, I have to credit, um, it was still available. So again, the Spanish channel did a great job and not just showing Spanish, um, Spanish speaking country. They did. You'd see games from Uruguay and Argentina and Newell's Old Boys against uh, River Plate. You know, you'd see games from Uruguay, um, from Chile. But they also showed games from Europe. I remember seeing games from Holland in the Spanish channel on the Spanish channels. Um, so they just did a great job. There was a game, like two games, a game on Saturday and a game on Sunday, and the Italian feed from Rye, and you were seeing, you know, the greatest players in the world. Socrates had moved to Italy, to Fiorentina, and Platini, Boniac, um, Maradona, of course. Um, those Wednesday games when I'd come home from school, I'd catch at least the second half. Not on the best, uh, the best uh, reception. We still had those crazy bow tie antennas back then. But still, it was something, and there was a... Um, I got a, my first subscription to World Soccer, which is still around today, from England. It would come like a month late, but I read it cover to cover, and I learned a lot of about the history of, of you know, club soccer, international soccer, from World Soccer magazine. Um, you know, Soccer America was actually hard to find, at least in my part of the Bronx. Um, there was Soccer Digest, which was still hanging around. There was, uh, you remember, there was these, these little magazines, Baseball Digest, Football Digest. There was so- Basketball Digest. There was Soccer Digest. Um, and I kept a lot of this stuff, too, uh, which is one of the reasons why I thought, let me try doing a, a first a long magazine piece. I did this as a long magazine piece. And then, uh, then I thought, I could keep going on this because I have so much stuff to refer back to. So that's what kept me interested. And again, you'd meet people. I got a job in an amusement park right for the 86 World Cup. And it was, a, again, a Jamaican guy. And we would talk soccer, you know, was, you know, between shifts and the, the, how excited we were that the World Cup was coming up. And every game was live on, I guess by then it was Univision. And, uh, and Maradona had this great World Cup. And you knew you were seeing someone special at the time. Uh, 84, you know, again, SIN showed, I believe, every game live of the European Championships in 84 in France. And that was a great tournament. You had the Danes coming up. They were so exciting. The French team in 84 was better than the 82 team and the the 86 French team. They were incredible. Um, So many great games. The Portugal team was good. Spain's team was good. And so that's that's what kept it alive. Yes, there there were no games to go to. So between 84, uh, Transatlantic Challenge Cup, and I think there was the next friendly I went to to Giant Stadium was 88. There were three South American teams that came, um, one from Colombia, one from Peru, and one from Ecuador, and plus Benfica. Um, So there were no games to go to except those. But again, I kept running into people, and it would always keep that that interest going. And... uh, so I have to really credit uh, those networks, uh, the Spanish networks and the Rye feed, uh, and uh, and and people I met, mainly foreign foreigners. Although there were Americans who liked it, you know, there were um, American-born fans, um, but many were immigrants, and whoever they were it was again, it was always a joy to talk 
soccer for 10 minutes in the street or a half hour or kick a ball for 20 minutes. Um, and that's what that's what kept it alive. How about that Cosmo uh, Cosmos reunion in 1991? Uh, I was at that game. Yeah. I probably saw you there somehow somewhere in amongst the 35,000 folks there. Yeah. I mean, I had it's funny. I remember that game well. And I have autographs from that game. Um, that was a one off game. And we somehow got press passes because I by then I was working at Esquire magazine. I had just started and there was an editor there quite well known named uh, David Hershey. And he was he covered the Cosmos in the 70s. He's even in that Cosmos documentary uh, once in a lifetime. He's quite funny in it. And um, he found out I like soccer and he, he finagled press passes, um, which probably wasn't really that hard back then because it wasn't necessarily a meaningful game. It was a friendly against the Italy 82, um, all, you know, uh, retirees, basically. They, they were all retired by then, the 82 Italian team. And then these NA, Cosmos and NASL players. And I brought this really great pictorial book, color photography book of the 82 World Cup. And I brought it with me and we had locker room access. And I went down and I got, I swear to you, I have autographs from Paolo Rossi, Claudio Gentile, Johan Naiskins, uh, Bogi, Bogicevic of the Cosmos, um, Seamus Mallon. I had Seamus Mallon, the announcer, um, who I always really liked. He signed the book. I, anyone I could just find, I just, could you sign this for me? And of course, you're not supposed to do that in the press box, but I was I was really young and I didn't care. That was It was really important to me to, um, you know, just stalk these guys and get their autographs. And if it were today, I'd probably get asked for selfies. But um, yeah, that was a fun afternoon. Um, and in those years, even uh, the early 90s were just as quote unquote dark. I mean, there wasn't, there, there was a 1990 World Cup, uh, of course, but um, even the 92 European championships weren't shown on the Spanish channel here. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so between yeah, the early nineties were tough, even after 94 was tough. Um, there was still not that much, you know, on TV, the internet was just kind of starting in 94 ish, but there wasn't like it is now. So, um, but you were, you were at the, yeah. you, so you were at that press conference though in 92, right? The Waldorf Astoria, when it was essentially announced that, uh, some of the logistics mm -hmm. and the specifics of the, of the world cup. And we had, um, uh, we had uh, Jim Trecker on a couple uh, episodes. Mm -hmm. ago. He was the sort of a mm -hmm. mastermind of all the press for uh, the U.S. World Cup. A very uh, excellent episode because he this is a lot of a lot of stuff. But he, he understood also sort of the I'm gonna call it the mission or the crusade, but sort of at least the importance, right, of mm -hmm. getting this World Cup right, right, not just as an event in the United States and and you know, but but the legacy. I think that's a word he kept coming back to. Uh, that that it would leave right, promising FIFA mm -hmm. obviously to win the the, the bid to, to start with right, mm -hmm. but but truly believing in it right, inclusive of a brand new league, a, a professional league uh, in earnest, uh, that would be one of the the key or perhaps the most lasting uh, results of it. But when you were at that press conference though, right, mm -hmm. uh, I mean you mentioned before like you said you believe it when you see it. Well, this this press conference felt pretty tangible. No, I mean did you did you did you sense that there was any real like a real sort of pivot or movement that maybe some real spark and lasting uh, 
flame, if you will, could uh, could result finally, or were you still so, disbelieving? Yeah, yeah, I was. Th- well, not disbelieving. I was still skeptical because I wasn't sure of the lasting that there would be a lasting legacy. I knew eventually Americans would catch on because it's such a great game, um, and it was it was about just exposing younger people to it. I think. But again, we'd heard that before. We heard that it was the most popular sport among kids. Like, right? Growing up, it was like, oh, soccer is the most popular sport with, you know, eight and 12 year olds. And we heard that in the 70s, the 80s. So, yeah, the press conference, you know, they gave us goodies. I kept, they gave a, an Adidas bag that was actually really good in black and green. And I, I used that bag like until it was holes in it. So they gave us goodies. And it, yeah, it seemed real. And, they, and they did get the World Cup right for the most part, actually. Um, but I was still, again, it was tough getting. And by then I was in the media and I, I saw how people would react when you would pitch an article on soccer. And it was still it, it was still a long way to go. And actually, there's still a long way to go, to tell you the truth. But um, but but the World Cup, yeah, that did change things. Um, it took a while, I think after the World Cup, but but um, yeah, it was it was a not a great World Cup, but a very good World Cup, and it went off without a hitch, and uh, and um, it did. I, I kind of hate the word legacy, whether it, whether it's about politicians or sporting events, but I, I think that it it it, it left a, a, a lasting legacy, the '94 World Cup for sure. Well, you do talk, you you do sort of corral this sort of second chapter of this book, and you do call the 94 and beyond to about 2002, 2003 era as the Renaissance. So maybe Mm -hmm. you could frame that, but again, both personally as well as sort of your observations of sort of what was happening to the sport that you came to love and stick with. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe a little sort of framing of sort of why you call that the Renaissance. It's probably very easy to kind of say, oh, 94 World Cup you know, uh, restart. But, you know, you're mentioning actually, I think, a pretty interesting divot uh, in the post-World Cup um, hangover, shall we say, Uh, successful, Mm -hmm. more money. I think it's still the most financially successful ever run. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, the idea of Major League Soccer, right, was still not fully formed. And actually, I think it was supposed to start in 95 originally was the original plan. That's right. And didn't get going Mm -hmm. until 96, and even then, right. it was still, you know, a lot of head scratching. So uh, maybe you can describe sort of how you sort of characterize these next nine to ten or so years as sort of a renaissance, and 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 your your understanding of why that is was the case. Well, it did it did put it on the map here. Um, again, it was always kind of on the map for some people and some communities, but this did give it a national exposure. I mean, um, more than it had ever had before. Um, when you think about the 82 World Cup final, yes, it was shown on ABC, but they had commercial breaks. Um, I think that was the only game they showed of that 82 of the World Cup. 86, there was a few more games. 90, I don't think there were any games on national TV in the U.S., um, at, in 94, Clinton, Bill Clinton, I think was at the opening ceremony. Maybe he was kicking balls around. I think he played in college a bit or in high school. So yeah, you started seeing it in different ways. Uh, and yeah, MLS was uh, 
started in spring of 96, later than they expected. Um, but it was something. And then, you know, the then more, it wasn't just that. I mean, more games were televised from Europe by then. You could go to certain bars, at least in New York, and see, by then it was the Premier League, not the English First Division. It was the um, English Premier League. And they would show um, live games in certain bars. And that hadn't been the case before. That was a, one of the, if I could just backtrack a bit, um, when I went to NYU, I, again, I was at this, involved in the school newspaper, and I did an article on the Sporting Club, which was the first sports bar, it's hard to believe, in, in Manhattan. And I did a story on it, and I asked the owner, what's your most popular event? And I was, of course, I was expecting here, he'd say the Super Bowl or March Madness or something. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. It's the FA Cup final. And I said, you're kidding me. I didn't even know you showed the FA Cup final. He's like, yeah, it's packed. You can't get into the place. And these English guys are drinking screwdrivers at like 10 in the morning. And Earlier than that. <laughs> so I went, yeah, yeah, earlier than that, right. So then I went to the next one, I think, um, at the sporting club. And he was right. It was packed. And that was the only place that showed the games. But by, by 94, yeah, you could see English games. And... Um, jerseys weren't a big thing then. They weren't even available yet, jerseys, in 94. But, yeah, there were more games from Europe, in bars at least. And uh, if you remember, uh, the Copa America in uh, 1995, the U.S. and Mexico were invited as special guests. And the U.S. had a great tournament. They finished, I believe, fourth. They made the semifinals. And that wasn't on TV at all. Um, so it was really almost like a step back those couple years after that, you, you put it well, that hangover, um, after 94 and, and then the internet really, you know, um, started to become the internet and there were just more, it was just more available, um, by the later nineties. Well, I think also so, media too, right? We go back to media, and that's this is that media is, uh, and uh, the the world of of the of the business of, of television and media is uh, is my day job. So I, I you know have a, a uh, an understanding of that a bit, and um, you know explosion of cable and and many more outlets, and and the, the need to feed the beast of programming. Obviously, this is still before the internet, really, right? But still, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you've got all these now dozens of channels versus just a handful, right? So there's actually some window of opportunity to get some of this stuff out there, right? And a, and a deal with ESPN to get to, to be the Major League Soccer's thing and and a deal with, I think it was Univision at the time still and and still is now. Um, you know, this is it's a brand new league and it's brand, it's programming and it's, you know, eight to 10 markets. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you wonder, it, it just seems like some of the, the, the broader macroeconomics and industries out there sort of, it made for a more fertile soil perhaps to get, a league like this off the ground, perhaps even more so than even just five years prior to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without question. Um, yeah, you said it, you said it perfectly. I mean, there, there was interest, there was thirst, there was hunger for soccer and it was just growing and it's still growing. And, um, I still think you know, the sky's the limit for the U.S. despite this huge setback. Um, and I'm not really a, a flag waver. I, I, 
again, I, I remember when I, I saw the, my first U.S. national team game in 1984 against Italy at Giant Stadium, a game you might have been at. It was raining the whole game. It was a Wednesday. It was pouring. Actually, it was pouring. Oh, you were there? Oh, yeah. It was pouring. I got so sick after that game. I, I don't think I've ever been sicker. I, I, I didn't have to go to the hospital, but I had such a flu. Um, <laughs> and um, there were still 50,000 there. And uh, that was my first U.S. national team game. And I remember Marco Tardelli, um, a hero from the 82 World Cup. I think I still have the I still have the articles from The New York Times. I think he said, yeah, really look out for the U.S. because they're going places, this team, <laughs> you know. So um, but of course, you know, they didn't make uh, the, the 86 World Cup U.S. now this this huge um, step back, but I still think the sky's the limit for the U S and I'm not, again, I meant to say, I'm not a flag waver, um, for, for U S soccer. I, I think I'm, a, um, I see the potential, but I can be critical when I, when I, when I need to be, but I still think the, the, um, the sky's the limit. I mean, you see, and I'm not the biggest uh, fan of, of major league soccer either. It never grabbed me the way the North American soccer league did or the, the European leagues. And I know they use this term Euro snob. There's nothing snobby about me and my, and the, and the friends I talk about in the book, we were not snobby. We just, you know, wanted to see great soccer. And if it was in South America or Europe or whether if the players were from Africa or Asia or wherever, um, that's kind of what you want to see, you know? And, um, but I still think, you know, that what's happening in Atlanta and the Pacific Northwest, I still think it might not be my favorite league. I think um, tactically it's, it's, it's really behind, um, way behind the European leagues tactically and, and technically. But I still think there's great potential in the U.S. And the, and the interest is here. You know, I'm getting ahead of myself, maybe. Um, I'm no, skipping this, over this some years, but no, I, I want to let's so maybe we could round up the round uh, off the conversation around that. So, uh, you know, you're you're you know, obviously you you have a, a longitudinal uh, viewpoint, right, of mm-hmm. sort of the, the current state of the professional game in the United States. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is obviously a, a new generation of fans that are, are you know, uh, either ignorant or or actually now I'm starting to see actually curious about this sort of ragtag history right so mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the you know the old some of the old north american soccer league names you know uh, yeah. now being adopted by or, or continued by an mls and 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 the interesting embrace or re-embrace of of that that heritage and culture um mm-hmm. to the extent that uh, it existed so i mean and i don't th- you're not the, so we've had plenty of guests both who played in the nasl and, and have been part of an mls and all this kind of stuff who you know there is sort of this uh, uh, belief set around, you know, what is it about Major League Soccer? I mean, on one level, right, you mentioned the Atlanta Uniteds and and the, the sellout crowds and, and, you know, the new stadia and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's an amazing boom time in, in many respects, right? Real estate projects and, and franchise values and Cincinnati now, you know, building a new stadium mm-hmm. and, you know, going from a USL club and stuff. And, and you could make the argument, right, that there is you know, this is a a boom time, right? Both at the minor league level and at the major league level. Um, mm-hmm. However, right to to your point, I, I I would agree. I think some of the the quality of play. I try to get connected to it. I I've been a Chicago Fire fan for some time, but I haven't gone to a game in the last <laughs> four or five years simply because I live right. in the suburbs of Chicago, and it's a it's a ninety mile round trip down to the south wow. suburbs. 
right? Oh, wow. So my wow. passion as I've gotten older and a family and all that stuff, right? I mean, I, I will go out of my way to watch it and, and try to follow it. But am I and or you possibly guilty <laughs> of looking in the rearview mirror and saying, ah, it's just not the NASL and the Cosmos? Or is it something mm-hmm. more than that and and maybe the collective ownership of the league and, and not being independent teams and pro, re, pro promotion relegation and all these other, you know, and, and or the the quality of play, you know, the U.S. not making the World Cup. I mean, is there something that's holding it back from maybe being sort of even more passionately successful, I guess? Yeah, I think it's it's not the former. It's not looking back at the cosmos with rose color, rose colored glasses. Um Although those were great times, and for some, again, some, for some reason, and the league was only 12 years old when I when I came to it, um, I, I, I it, it grabbed me the way MLS never did. Although I tried many, on many different occasions with MLS, and I did have some some good times at MLS games. Don't get me wrong, but um, it, it's it's the second point you made, and I just think, and it's not easy. I mean, it's a huge country. We should have four divisions all connected. I mean, we should. And if we did, you know, I think soccer becomes the most popular sport in, within 10 or 20 years, if not less, frankly. Um, and it's okay. Also, Americans have this idea, like, if you don't pack a stadium that's 76,000, like Giant Stadium or whatever, 50,000, you're a failure. And I've been to games in Europe, fourth division games where there's 200 people and the players are like fighting at halftime. It's that competitive. Um, And if Omaha, Nebraska has a team and it's fourth division and they, they attract 500 people, like there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and maybe they'll have a great Hollywood story one day with it in the cup. They'll, you know, beat DC United and make the quarterfinals of the U S open cup, you know, and that, how great would that be? You know? So again, I think really Americans, if I could be a little critical here, I think as a Serie A fan for the longest time, you know, the word tactics comes up a lot and you, you kind of don't realize tactics can be very boring. Actually, it could be watching, like watching people play chess, but it's still very important. And, it doesn't make for exciting soccer always, but but it's important. And technique, little things about technique that start from a very young age that someone like me, like when I would get the ball in a game, I would I would kind of I would do all these nice things in practice. I love juggling the ball because I would have to play by myself in those early years. So I became a great juggler of the ball, which looked nice. But in a game, it's it, it, it does mean something. It's about touch as as. My Jamaican friend, Amani, as his uncle told me back in the early 80s, he said, never let anyone tell you juggling is an, is an importance about touch. But still, when I would get the ball at my feet, I, I would panic because I picked the game up a little too late. And these things have to be taught from good coaches at a very young age. Um, and I think that's something that we still, you know, don't have. We, we lack great coaching and it's really a sophisticated um, thinking regarding the tactics. And, um, and also, still the best leagues in the world are in Europe. You know, I'm sorry to say. And um, the best Brazilian players eventually, you know, get to Europe at a fairly young age. Um, and the best African players. Asian players, what have you, and not enough U.S. players are there. And 
I know a lot that that upsets a lot of people, but that's my view anyway. And Jürgen Klinsmann had said this, and he was criticized um, for saying it. But I, you know, you, you have to be in these Champions League type teams um, or Europa League teams. Even look how great Atletico Madrid is. Um, I mean, how great would it be if if American players were on uh, on uh, under Simeone, you know, Diego Simeone? Um, so again, great strides were made in this country, but there's still a long way to go. And, but it's been great to just kind of take it all in and watch it and see it develop. Yeah, um, I don't get, I after, don't get a, I don't get a sense from you that this uh, this personal journey uh, in and around this sport has been um, a futile exercise or a waste of time. No, no, it's always it's it's been a joy. There's been some frustrations um, seeing it. Um, especially media, being that I'm in the media, um, to see who gets to cover it, who has a voice. Um, so there have been some frustrations, but you know, just seeing the fan interests um, and where there was very, very, very little um, back in the 80s and 90s, and to see it really kind of take off. And now it, it just feels so mainstream now, you know. Um, to see someone walking down the street with, you know, a Manchester United jersey. Now you see Borussia Dortmund jerseys and and uh, kind of, you know, at first when jerseys became popular in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, you just see a few teams, Manchester United and Chelsea, Arsenal, um, Real Madrid. But now you see all kinds of jerseys. Um, including, FC, just goes to show. including FC NYC jerseys uh, that cost right. something on the order of 85 to $90 at Models. So, uh, you know, right. <laughs> the, right. the influence right. of big right. money, even for major league soccer teams, I, you know, that to me, that's the sort of thing I, I, I worry about most is sort of, you know, uh, I call it corruption or, or whatever, but um, you know, big money, right. I, we see it major league soccer, right. A lot of this is, you know, is rooted in uh, economic uh, revenue streams, uh, real estate projects, uh, stadia, that kind of stuff, right? Which is all well and good. It's the word, I guess, is infrastructure, um, mm-hmm. which I think is important and 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 good for the, sort of the longer lasting uh, success of the sport. But I also, of course, uh, get a bit cynical when we sort of see the merchandising coming before, say, the quality of soccer on the pitch and or, you know, centralized control of a league when, you know, maybe more independence of franchises and a little bit more, um, shall we say, on-the-ground innovation uh, that could spark more, I guess, genuine rivalries and passion, um, you know, the, the artificiality of that. And again, I understand it, right? I mean, mm-hmm, given mm-hmm. the history of this, the checkered history of this sport in this country, right, you you can, uh, abs- and, and people like yourselves, right, who can appreciate mm-hmm. having gone through sort of the the very dark times, right, when it was just a chore to actually be a fan of the sport in this country, um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in some cases, yes, an embarrassment of riches, but you can't you can't manufacture authenticity and passion. And no, I think one of, the, one of the narratives of, of this of this story that you've written is 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 a passion, right? Your own personal sort of journey and experience and and uh, falling in love with this sport and, and 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 doing all the things that one needs to do when one falls in love. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite mm-hmm. all the odds. Um so in many respects, it's the best of times, but it's also, I think, depending on your perspective, a bit of the worst of times when, you know, uh, quality of the play. We haven't made the World Cup this year after, you know, 
Uh, I just I wonder what your thoughts are about what sort of the next you know decade or two might look like for the sport in this country, given your uh, experience with the sport, uh, both through good and bad times. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think it's, it's still, I think the world cup, I, first of all, I, I think I sent a tweet when, when the U S was eliminated that, you know, this could be a, the start of something good in a way, but then again, not really. I mean, uh, you know, Bruce arena writing a book that's, I, I guess just out, I haven't read it. I've read reviews of it and, and him make you know criticizing the system when he's part of the system. And Bruce Arena has his qualities. He got us, he got the U.S. you know to the quarterfinals in 2002, the best World Cup performance the U.S. ever had. So you can't take that away from him. He he was did well domestically, but I don't know. He's to me part of the problem, and uh, I don't you know <laughs> I don't know what the future holds. I just know there's interest here. And it doesn't, if you're not an MLS fan, yes, it's nice to go to a game and support your local team, but you could put on, again, I touch on this in the book, even 10 years ago, where you, back in the 90s even, you had a choice of just one game or two games a weekend. And now you have, my God, any game basically you want. Um, uh, and I guess on streaming, you could probably watch the J League or the K League from South Korea or the Australian League. I, I don't even know. I imagine you could, but there's so much um, there's so much choice now. You could just say, "I'm going to watch um, Napoli games or Arsenal games," um, and you know, and that's fine too. If someone just wants to watch Arsenal games, I don't like Arsenal, but that's, you know, that's their choice and that's fine with me. I'm not going to, and if someone just wants to watch DC United, I'm not going to, I mean, there are these wars on Twitter, on soccer Twitter that are incredible, but if someone wants to watch DC United games, that's up to them. You know, I'm not going to like yell at them. Um, my team is Roma. You know, we had a nice season. Um, we made the semifinals uh, for the first time in champions league ever, or for the first time since 1984. And that was nice. I didn't expect it. Um, so I don't want anyone yelling at me for being a Roma fan. And, and I've gotten that, too, from Americans. Like, how could you how could you not support? You know, I, I, I used to really like the Metro Stars. I wanted to I really try to engage with the Metro Stars and, and Red Bulls. But it, I don't know. It just never stuck. So where is it going? I'm not sure. I, I just know that people have really fallen for the game the way I did all those years ago. And I just see the interest um, and love for the game will just continue. Um, what that means for the pyramid and the league I, and the national team, the women are already best in the world or, or close to it, always in the you know top in the mix to win the world cup. The men, I, that's going to be a ways away, but um, that doesn't matter. I mean, Holland didn't make the World Cup, Tim. You know, Italy didn't make the World Cup. Chile, Ghana didn't make the World You know, really great pedigreed teams didn't make this World Cup. So England didn't make it in in, um, in 94. And then they, you know, the Premier League has gone to be the most, at least popular league in the world. I don't think it's the best league, but it's the most popular. And England had a good 98 World Cup. Um, following that. So France didn't make it in, you know, um, 90. 
in 94 and then they came back to win it in 98. So I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, I think leadership needed to change and it needs to change more, I think. But what happens beyond that? I'm not sure. Well, spoken like a true fan, and uh, I, I can't recommend uh, this book uh, enough. And, and why don't you give our uh, our listeners a, a bit of uh, promotional goodness for uh, the book, uh, where they can find it, and uh, your other exploits and or social media stuff. How can they learn more about you and or the book? Yeah, well, basically, um, it's called The Soccer Diaries, an American's 30-year pursuit of the international game. It's published by the very good people at the University of Nebraska Press. It's an excellent press um, on many different levels. Uh, they do great baseball books, especially. Um, and this very open-minded editor took a chance on me um, after he read this article I did in, uh, in a literary magazine called Tin House. Um, so I'm really grateful to the folks there. And you could get it at the University of Nebraska Press website or Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Um, and actually, can I tell you one quick tidbit Absolutely. about the Cosmos about this? If we, I'm, we're probably running out of time. No, but go right ahead. This, this, was, this was a really odd coincidence, and it caught me totally off guard. The day it came out in, 19, in 2014, I think the official pub date, I could check on Amazon, I don't even remember, it was maybe May something, the end of May 2014. And that day... Maybe it was the day before or day after. I think it might have been the exact day. I had a job for the World Cup, like a three-month job at a new network called Fusion, which was owned by Univision. And a few of us, they put us in a hotel to work for a couple months in Miami or outside of Miami, Doral. And a few of us went to Fort Lauderdale to see the Fort Lauderdale Strikers versus the New York Cosmos. And I couldn't believe this. I thought I was seeing things. And who was there like a couple rows from me? And you would remember these guys, two Cosmos, Chico Borja and Richard Chinapu. They were sort of from the, the later years. And Chico Borja played for the U.S. national team. He was Ecuadorian American and he played for the Cosmos, a really good midfielder. And he also played on that short lived Team America where they had the national team play as a a club team within the NASL and they were out of Washington, DC. So Jeff Durgan, uh, moved down to team America, Chico Borja. And I feel sorry for this generation because they were kind of the lost generation. They were some good players there, Steve Moyers, Ricky Davis, and they never got that chance to play in the world cup. And next to Chico Borja was another Cosmo named Richard Chinapu, who was actually from Trinidad and played for Long Island university really nice, elegant player. And he played for the Trinidad national team. And I, I couldn't believe, A, I recognized them. And then I was sure it was them. And they're both mentioned in the book. And I thought, how weird is this? Like, I've never been a Lockhart Stadium in my life. But great little stadium, by the way, in Fort Lauderdale. I I've seen to. it all those years. Yeah. Um, I'd seen it all those years ago on Cosmos games. And there I was. And, the, and there's Chico Boy and, and Richard Chinapu. And I, I was going to – I somehow became a 14-year-old, and I was, like, too nervous to approach them. And I was going to say, hey, you're fondly remembered in my book that just came out today. So if they're – by chance they ever hear this, um, maybe they should open it because um, they were they were really good players. And, um, and yeah, so that's my little um, 
Cosmos remembrance about well, two, the book. And then Cosmos... Yeah, I was yeah. Say, two Go guests ahead. we wouldn't mind having on the show. So uh, Ernan Chico Borja, uh, obviously uh, uh, the Cosmos, but also uh, uh, quite a, uh, an adept player indoors with the Wichita Wings, etc. And uh, yeah, Richard Chinapu, yeah. who also went on to a very solid uh, indoor career of his own, I think with the Baltimore Blast and I think a bit with maybe with the Cosmos when they had their dalliance with indoor and stuff. So we we love, if you guys are listening, by all means, not only <laughs> buy the book uh, and or get another copy of the book now that it's out in uh, paperback, but... Let's also get you on the show. I think it'd be great. Cool dude, that Michael Agavino. No, no question about that. Uh, and uh, not only a cool dude, but a cool book. Uh, it is called, uh, as we referenced, The Soccer Diaries, an American's 30-year pursuit of the international game. It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. The original version uh, is in hardcover, came out in 2014. I'm sure you can find a few copies of that floating around, but the uh, the reissue, the uh, uh, paperback version, uh, is just out and, and just in time for uh, to accompany, uh, if you will, your World Cup viewing uh, coming up. So uh, you'll find links to uh, uh, the book uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Michael Agavino and you will find uh, a link to it. And uh, by buying through that link on Amazon, you'll give us a, a little uh, a little love uh, financially and keep our little show going. We appreciate that. Uh, Michael, as he said, uh, is uh, also uh, followable on Twitter. And again, I, I, this is, uh, you know, look, if you if you uh, remember that uh, being a soccer fan uh, in the uh, in the late 70s and early 80s uh, and then, frankly, beyond once the NASL collapsed and uh, and times were not necessarily uh, as rosy as uh, as arguably they are today. And uh, it's a great look back. And I think it really sort of sets the scene for appreciation for what we have today and uh, perhaps a bit of, uh, you know, uh, uh, editorial uh, uh, critique on uh, on how the sport uh, uh, has evolved, perhaps where it might go in the future. And uh, it, I think uh, it's really important for any person that calls himself a, a soccer fan, this great sport. Uh, about where its future lies in the, in the, in the United States, uh, will benefit from and enjoy uh, reading uh, Michael's book, The Soccer Diaries. Thank you to him. Uh, we thank you, of course, our, our dedicated and devoted listeners. Uh, and uh, if you're new to the show, may, by all means, make sure that you uh, continue to uh, learn more by going to our website. As, uh, as mentioned before, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find all of our old episodes. Uh, which you can download. You can obviously find all the places that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or you you, know, you name the places. We're probably there and out there. Uh, and also you can follow us and uh, interact with us on uh, on our various social media feeds. Uh, at Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And you will also find us on Facebook, a little page devoted to us as well. You can send us email by going to our website and all that kind of stuff. There are a plentiful number of ways to find and connect with us, and uh, we love it when you do. We appreciate all your cards and letters, as they say, and uh, all your suggestions and your engagement in the show. We can't do this without you, and I'm amazed literally every week uh, to discover new people, nooks and crannies, and, and geographies, people from all over the world, for whatever reason, discovering, finding the show, uh, reacting to it, resonating with it, uh, believe it or not. And um, we, uh, we appreciate that, and uh, it, it uh, keeps us going. And uh, please, uh, uh, by all means, continue to to let us know what you like, what you don't like, and perhaps even some suggestions and stuff, too. All right, I'm done. My name's Tim Hanlon. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, More fun and frivolity coming at you hopefully next week. And uh, until then, we uh, bid you a fond adieu. Take care, everybody. (laughs) 